Today's scripture reading is from Psalms 119, 1-16. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes, notes or beginning on page 436 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. Blessed are those who, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who, who seek him their, their, their whole heart, who also do not wrong but walk in his ways. You have committed your precepts to me diligently. Oh, that my ways may be stand fast, stand fast, and keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statues. I will not forget your word. This is the word of God. Thank you, guys. That's Katie and Justin. Didn't they do a nice job of reading that? Yeah. Yeah. I love to hear children, and forgive me for calling you a child, Justin, but you're still not quite grown up, you know. I love to hear kids interact with the word of God. I love to hear children you know, read the scriptures, learn the scriptures. Um, I was blessed to grow up in a family where the scriptures were very, very important. In fact, when I was in third grade, I began a, uh, a Bible memorization program that I did for about 10 consecutive years. If you wonder how come I know a lot of scriptures, that's why. Because I had parents who and the very first uh, Bible memory program that I was part of was the whole thing was on the Word of God. And I had to learn verses like Jeremiah 15, 16. I still remember it to this day. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I'm called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I thought, I'm eating God's Word. I remember thinking, that's weird, but I never forgot it. And I memorized one of the verses which Justin just read with you. I memorized it in uh, two of the verses that were in that text, um, in verse 9 and verse 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. Is that a good thing for a nine-year-old to learn about? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. It's different now, but that's the basic the idea of it. In other words, how can a man keep his way clean and pure? By listening to God's Word. It's good for a nine-year-old to learn that. Um, and in verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Great opportunity. So it's so valuable 
to be a person who understands and exposes yourself to the Word of God. Now, you may not have had the chance to do that when you were young, and you may have missed the chance to do that with your children now, but let's not worry about the responsibility you might have had to someone else, and let's think about the responsibility you have to your own self to become a student of the Word. I think it is so important, I think, to teach our children the Word of God. And so for Maddie's, Maddie, uh, our granddaughter's first birthday, I, so the best thing about, uh, that I remember about the first birthday was my daughter calling me up about October or so or November. Oh, there she is. And her saying to me, Daddy, would you give my, da- my, uh, my daughter a Bible for Christmas? Well, of course I was going to do that already. I had to find one, and so this is her, and you, can see, you can't very see it, the Bible storybook for little eyes, the Bible storybook for little eyes, and Don and I wrote in that, oh, there she is, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, we wrote in there, Maddie, this is the best book, this the book about God who made the world, this is the book about Jesus who loves you. This is the best book. This is your mommy's best book. Your daddy's best book. And may it be your best book. Now, why would you give something like that to a kid who's not even yet one year old? Because train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from. And so out of the blue this week, I get a, a, a text message from my daughter. This came just this week. And it was a little thing, Maddie's favorite book. <laughs> Maddie's favorite. Now, it's a little bit, you, forgive me for using a little sentimentality, but I just want for you to realize that it's so important to understand the role of the Scriptures in your life. And so this morning's talk, as we kind of continue our overall look of ourselves as a church, Ecclesia Unleashed, Act 2, we're taking a look at this idea, Scripture, Ecclesia, you. Scripture, Ecclesia, you. And we're talking about each of those as a heading this morning as we just think about the importance of Scripture in the story of the world and in the story of our church and in the story of your life. So I have a very simple message this morning that I hope is very uh, helpful and practical uh, uh, to you. The Scripture, let's, uh, you can go to the next one now, uh, Michelle. Uh, uh, we're going to take a look at this whole idea of the Scripture. You know, there are some famous, famous lines in the story of uh, the play called Macbeth where he says this, these famous lines, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, I think Macbeth says these lines. He's not think, these are not necessarily what he believes, but these are the way he thinks people think about life often. The life is just a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is it true that life is just sort of a random series of events that the world got here purely by accident? You're here purely by accident. The love feelings that you feel for others are purely chemical reactions based upon the need for the survival of the species. There's no overarching purpose in life, and there's nothing really that matters at the end of the day that you began, uh, uh, that life began in the dust, and you end as fertilizer in the dust, and there's just, there's nothing more to it. Is that really what life is about? Well, 
from a scientific and often from a philosophic perspective and a perspective and an academic perspective, often this is what people believe. Or is there a grand design, an overarching story which will someday reach its climax? Christianity affirms that it is, there is a grand design, that there is something that, towards which script, the, the, the story of our lives is going. And so we want to, first of all, affirm the importance of Scripture. I want you to see two things on this heading. First of all, the story of Scripture is true. The story of Scripture is true. From the very beginning of the church, in fact, its roots are found in the synagogue worship of the Jewish people. Scripture reading has been at the center of the life of the people of God. Reading Scripture, studying Scripture, acting out scriptural stories, singing Scripture, drenching ourselves and our community in scriptural stories. These have been at the center of church life, even of the Jewish life before the church came on the scene. You know, excuse me. Yes, the story, the, the, the story of the Scripture is a true story about a God who created this world and has a design for this world. You see, many people look at the Bible purely as an instruction book. I need to learn how to, how to get God to answer my prayer. What are the steps to get God to answer my prayer? I need to learn how to overcome sin. Give me some verses to help me overcome sin. I need some wisdom in my life. Give me some verses on wisdom. I need some stories just to help me be encouraged in my life. Scripture is much more than that. I remember as a kid, one of the downsides of learning so many memory verses is that I was shocked to discover that memory verses were in the middle of Bible chapters and in parts of stories. You know, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life wasn't just a verse plopped up there somewhere in the Gospel of John. But what is it? It's part of a story about a conversation between Jesus and a devout religious man who knew that there would need to be something more than what he had experienced. It was part of a story. We understand the verses in the context of the chapters, the chapters in the context of the, of the book, book in the context of the whole Bible. There's a huge story that's going on. The Bible is not merely an instruction book. That's one of the difficulties that we just learn creeds and catechisms is we just get the, the bits and pieces. We don't see the overarching story. The Bible is fundamentally a narrative, oh, an overarching story from the beginning of time until the, the end of time. It's the true story of the world. You know, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm around, uh, uh, around the beginning of the football season. Have you noticed that? It's a preseason game. And Carson Palmer plays seven plays, right? And people paid thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, all cumulative, to fill up that stadium so they could watch the starters play about, you know, <laughs> what? One or two downs, right? One or two series of the thing. And they're, pardon? One series. That's what they do. And of course it was on Channel 15, and of course they had pregame, and of course they talked about it forever, and of course they lost like 42 to 10, but of course it doesn't matter because it's not really a game, but we get all hyped up about it. And I love sports too. Not as much as I used to, but I, I do love sports. We get so energized about things that ultimately may not really matter. But there's a better story going on. It's the story we celebrate every time we come for worship. This story, that's the true story of 
the world. The Bible is fundamentally a story, the true story of the world. The instructions and the commandments are incidental to the story, not the reverse. We read the Scripture not just to get nuggets for our daily life, but rather to be continually reminded of and shaped by the cosmic purposes of God so that we can enjoy such things as football or baseball or sports and not think it's the ultimate thing. Your problem is when you take good things and make them ultimate things. But if you don't decide what's truly ultimate in your life, something else will become ultimate. And it might become a sports team or making a lot of money or having a lot of pleasure or owning a lot of stuff or going a lot of places. Even your family can become ultimate to you. The scriptural story is about God and His story of what He's doing in the world so that we can shape our lives under that larger story. Someone wrote, our lives must find their place in some greater story or they will find their place in some lesser story. Stephen Shoemaker. Our lives must find their place in some greater story or they will find their place in some lesser story. You know how it is. You've given your life to stories that don't matter that much. You know, when you were in high school, perhaps, maybe it was really important for you to be popular, (laughs) to have everybody like you. And that was so important that everything was around, everything subjugated around that. I remember wrestling with that when I was in high school and wanting to be well-liked and and, uh, and going to a church that had a relatively large and diverse youth group that I loved being a part of. And then going to high school and finding out that some of the people in my youth group weren't that cool at high school, you know? And having that challenge of how friendly do I be to the people who won't enrich my social status in the school but are my friends. And I remember thinking, that is awful, you see? And yet, we do it, don't we? Don't you sometimes give yourself to relationships and to objectives and to goals, you will give your life to some kind of story. And so what Shoemaker said is true. Our lives must find their place in some greater story or they will find their place in some lesser story. So in a lot of ways, when we come together for worship, we come to be reminded of the great story of God and what He's done for the world and for us. And we're also come to be challenged about the lesser stories that we've clung to so tightly that don't really give freedom. Yes. Someone else has written, many people think of the Bible as a book of moral teaching with stories sprinkled through to illustrate the teachings, but it's a lot better than that. The Bible is a single true story with teachings sprinkled through to illustrate the story. Tim Keller wrote that. You see, in a world with many competing stories, many of which are false, we want to immerse ourselves in the grand story of this beautiful world created by God, broken by human rebellion, rescued by God's grace, and ultimately renewed and restored by Jesus. Remember the big story? The four-act play? Beautiful world, broken world, rescued world, restored world. God's beautiful creation filled with harmony and delight, relationship with God and with relationship with one another, relationship with ourselves, relationship with this, this, cosmos, this world that God has created and told us to cultivate and care for. Bro- beautiful world, but broken world because of human rebellion by saying to God, we can run the world better on ourselves. And so immediately we were alienated from God, alienated from our own sense of self-security, 
needing to find it somewhere else now, alienated from the ones we love and care about, such as Adam and Eve were, certainly as they walked out of that garden, blaming each other for the sin they each had committed, and then, of course, creating culture, which is designed to enhance our own self-esteem and make us feel good about ourselves instead of serving and making a flourishing earth, broken creation, rescued creation, First of all, through Abram, whom God called, through whom God made a family, through whom he intended to bless the world, calling them out of his progeny, the nation of Israel, setting up his covenant, and yet having them be not only the bearers of God's blessing, but also being the, bar- the barriers to uh, their own brokenness, getting in the way of God's blessing, so that ultimately Jesus gives his life to rescue us, bring us back to himself, and then on day one of Resurrection Day, on the first day of the week, new creation was born. It will not be culminated until Christ returns, but it is now our opportunity to implement the, the, the truth of the resurrection in our lives as we live our lives today, becoming resurrection people in a world too much enamored by death. That's the true story of the world. We need to see that story, respond to that story, live that story, let that story seep into our hearts, let go of the lesser stories. That's why we try to uh, uh, remember the story of Scripture is true. We want that story to shape our consciousness. We want to look our, locate ourselves as participants in that story, as actors in that drama, as musicians in that orchestra, as athletes on that team. To do that, we need to know that story, to be immersed in that story, to be familiar in that story, so that we naturally begin to see our lives from its perspectives. Yeah. This is how our corporate and individual characters are shaped. Yes. The story of Scripture is the true story of the world. And the star, number two, the star of Scripture is Jesus. The star character in Scripture is Jesus. In fact, one of the things that's so important to discover, that Jesus said the Old Testament was about Him. All these Old Testament stories, they're about Jesus. For hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus, they're really about Jesus. John 5, 39, Jesus is speaking to some people, some religious people. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. When he said Scriptures, he didn't mean the New Testament. That hadn't been written. He meant the Old Testament, which bears witness to Jesus. And then in Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, verse, 20, verse 25, he's talking to two discouraged disciples walking the road to Emmaus. And he, they don't know who he is just yet. He's resurrected from the dead. They've heard stories about the resurrection. They haven't seen it yet. It's the same day, resurrection day. Luke 24, 25, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When it says Moses, it means the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets would be all the prophetic writings. He says, these are talking about me. They're pointing to me. Yes. And later on in that same chapter, Luke 24, 44, these are my, he's now appeared to the disciples later that night in the upper room. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. 
Yes, we want to see Jesus in the Scripture. So the story of the Scripture is true, and the star of the Scripture is Jesus. And so let's go to the second of our three points. We've talked about the Scripture. Let's talk next about ecclesia. That's our official name for our church. It means the called, gathered, sent ones. It's the Bible word for church. Got translated church by, well, for bad reasons because church had to do with more of a building the better way, the original translations, the first people to translate the Bible into English used the word congregation for church, congregation, and some used the word assembly. It doesn't speak about a place. It speaks about a people, the assembly, the congregation. And so we want you to know, first of all, as a church, we trust the Scripture. We trust the Scripture. We make no apology for believing that here we have in the Scripture the words of God written in the words of men that God superintended the writing of this, God protected it, God preserved it, God made sure that we could see it so that we can see God's work in our lives. And so uh, we trust the Scripture. Now, a lot of people, uh, just to take a couple minutes to take uh, maybe a thought that some of you might have, a lot of people have heard or said, maybe you even heard, well, how do you know those stories aren't just made up about Jesus? How do you know someone just make them up later? Well, the first thing that I want you to note is that when you start talking about the authority of Scripture, what you really want to start with is the person of Jesus. The fundamental question in life is who is the person of Jesus? How do we learn about Jesus? There are only a few references in extant literature, secular literature, a few references. He really was a minor character on the world stage. But we have these Gospels and these, the New Testament written primarily about Jesus. Can we trust these documents? What do they say about Jesus? How do I feel about what they say about Jesus? Can I trust what they say? Are they just legendary, made-up stories that perhaps later on they talked about it as if, well, he must have done this miracle. Remember that miracle back in 1962, you know, that we remember? Yeah, I remember we were there. We were all thirsty and all, you know, they kind of made, and their faith made up stories. You ever heard that? Yeah, a lot of people think that. Well, that's very dishonest scholarship to think about. Let me give you couple reasons why that's true. The stories in the Bible, first of all, are too early to be legendary. The stories in the New Testament about Jesus are too early to be legendary. Jesus died in about 30 or 33 A.D. The Gospels were written within three decades. All of them, most everybody believes that all of them were written before 70 A.D., the Gospels, 40 years, because, you know, Israel had, uh, you know, excuse me, the the, the temple had been... uh, uh, burned to the ground in 70 A.D., so these were written before that time. And it is the earliest writings about Jesus are not found in the Gospels, but are found in the letters of Paul. We just finished a lot of time studying the book of Acts and seeing the apostle Paul, and we saw that he began his, his earliest letters are written in the late 40s or early 50s A.D. Within 20 years after the time that Jesus was on the earth, there are these stories written so that, in, for example, uh, so that, for example, Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you the gospel that Jesus appeared uh, to Peter and to James and to more than 500, and these witnesses are still alive. Yes, it's only been 15 to 20 years. These stories about the resurrection of Jesus occurred way too early and were written down way too soon for them to be legends. It's not like 60 or 70 years or decades went by when early, earliest eyewitnesses were gone. No, with regard to the resurrection, there are two things to remember. 
maybe three. The tomb was empty. Anybody could have gone to the tomb and found a dead body there, right? If it was still there. The tomb was empty and never accounted for. The other is the Savior was seen. He was seen by many people, more than 500 at one time. You could talk to people. So I saw him. I ate with him. I talked to him. He was there. I touched him. The tomb was empty. The Savior was seen. And thirdly, the disciples were changed. Right away from the beginning, the stories about a resurrected Jesus came out from them, and they, their lives were changed, and they began to die for the very one that they were starting to abandon when he first was crucified. Everybody knows that a dead Messiah is a failed movement. Everybody knows that. And they had a dead Messiah, but it wasn't a failed movement. Why? Because they believed that this dead Jesus was raised up from the dead and had a new body and was alive even then, and it sent them on a mission to change the world with the message of resurrection. And these stories about the resurrection are early, early, early. That's why Luke, when he writes his opening to his gospel, he can say, I have carefully investigated and interviewed eyewitnesses. He wanted Theophilus, to whom he wrote that book, to know that he had researched it and he knew it was true, yes. And as I said, Paul wrote the same things within 20 years after Jesus uh, uh, was, was uh, on the scene. Within 20 years uh, after Jesus was on the scene. And the, the, you know, anyway, so all these stories about Jesus are way too early. They may have been mistaken. They may have been lying. But they were not legendary stories. All right? So you've got to decide the stories about Jesus. And this is, you know, of course, C.S. Lewis or others wrote this. Are they lies? <laughs> right? Was Jesus a lunatic making claims that he couldn't fulfill? Are they legendary? I've just told you that that's the least reasonable. Or is he the Lord? Is he the Lord? Examining that evidence. We can trust the Scripture. And so if we then begin to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then we can believe in what Jesus has done. And Jesus trusted the Scripture. Jesus talked about himself as a fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures from the other. So from that point in, we come into confidence in the Scripture. You see that? Come into confidence through the person of Jesus. The stories are too early to be legendary. And in fact, the stories that were written about his resurrection were not the kinds of stories that you would have normally written if they were not true. For example, when you read the Gospels, do you find the disciples to be uh, great characters worthy of being followed? What do you find them to be? They're fighting with each other. They're disbelieving. They're running away. These are the guys who are now the leaders of the church. And these Gospels are written you, you would never make up stories which made the leaders look so bad unless it was true, right? These are just, there's an honesty in those stories. And of course, as you've heard me before say, you know, just the fact that in each gospel, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women are evidence of the fact that they would not have made up that story. Well, so we trust the Scripture. And then secondly, we teach the Scripture. We teach the Scriptures. You know, and we recognize, I written, wrote this down because we wouldn't really have time to talk about it. As I approach the Scriptures, I want to say we try to stay as much in the middle as we can. We're not tied to a particular denomination. We don't have a particular theological axe to grind. We believe in the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. We believe in salvation by grace through faith. 
Uh, we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, given his life for our sins and raised from the dead. Those are the essential things. In non-essentials liberty, there are many things that people argue about and are unsure about that devout Christians have been discussing for two millennia, equally devoted to Christ, equally devoted to the Scriptures. So we try to steer in the middle as much as we can. We say it's good to have your opinion, you know, about when Jesus is going to come back, but don't fight with everybody else about it, you know. It's good to have your opinion about some of these things. We can discuss them, but let's discuss them as brothers and sisters. And so we want in all things to have charity. Yeah. As a church, we teach the Scripture. We trust the Scripture, and we teach the Scripture. Let's look thirdly and finally at you, at you, at us. Let us study the Scriptures faithfully. That's what I love about those psalms which uh, uh, Katie and Justin read for us earlier. This, the, the 119th psalm, is the longest chapter in the Bible. I think there's 176 verses, if I remember correctly. And if you look at it in your Bible, you'll see that it is divided in groups of eight. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, all these words. Because it is actually an acrostic poem where every first word of every line begins with, the, in this case, the letter A. So eight stanzas starting with A, Aleph. And then eight stanzas starting with B, Beth. And the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is an acrostic poem. And there's 22 of them because they didn't have 26 letters like you and I do. They had 22, all right? So that's why you have 22 times 8, this psalm in praise of God's Word. And of those 176 verses, all but about four speak about God's Word in one fashion or another. Various synonyms, your testimonies, your statutes, your laws, your Word. Look at it. Read through it sometime. Think about it. Yeah. Psalm is the psalm, psalm 119 is a great reminder of the importance of God's Word, that as we study God's Word, we can keep our ways pure, verse 9, that we can seek Him with our whole hearts, verse 10, so that we don't wander, that we hide His Word in our hearts, verse 11, so that we don't sin against Him, that we want to have God teach us His statutes, and we want to declare the rules of His mouth. We want to delight in your testimonies, just like gold or riches. And we want to meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. We want to delight in His statutes. We do not want to forget His Word. I encourage you to make it part of the habit of your life to spend time regularly, daily, in God's Word. A lot of you are doing that, and I know it's helping you to grow. There are various ways to do that. If you need special help in anything, you get kind of stuck in how to read this scripture or, or, or need some specific help, just let me know, and I'd be glad to talk with you about how you can uh, uh, it, it, you find different ways of reading the scripture, whether you do it quickly or slowly or prayerfully or journaling your thoughts through it. Read it regularly, and then secondly, submit it to the scriptures humbly. Submit to the Scriptures humbly because we need to make sure that we surrender our lives to the bigger story or else we will find ourselves giving our lives to the lesser story. I remember when I was 16 years old sitting in the pastor's office of the church where I attended nervously because I was going to share with him that I thought maybe God had called me into the ministry. And I was just getting ready to start my senior year of high school and uh, I talked to my girlfriend, who later became my wife, Donna, 
and I had talked to my dad and my family, and I felt this was the step I needed to take, and he affirmed me in that. And a few months later, in about December of that year, he said, Steve, we're having a youth Sunday coming up, Sunday night service. I wonder if you'd be willing to preach a sermonette. He called it a sermonette. He didn't know me well enough. To know. I've never done a sermonette. Any, I've never done a net anything, right? Quit laughing, Greg. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have Youth Sunday. Would you be willing to do that? And I thought, well, I said I was going to go into ministry. So on a Sunday in January, I got up there and preached my very, very first sermon. It's called The Benefits of Bible Study. It was on Psalm 119 this text, not this sermon, but this text of all the great benefits that the scriptures bring to us, the benefits of wisdom, of purity, of guidance, of blessing, these great benefits. Even at that young age, I was able to see what a blessing the scriptures were. And it's been my privilege for about 40 years since, which is sort of weird to admit, to have opportunities hundreds and hundreds of times to study the Scripture and to share it with others. I share it with you today, and I trust that you will then catch a vision for the value of the Scripture in your life, and that you will surrender your heart to it and study it faithfully. Let's have prayers we close. Father, we're grateful and thankful that as we gather here this morning, we gather here as people under the Word of God, the Word of God, that great story of beautiful, broken, rescued, renewed world that centers on Jesus, who didn't just love everybody, but loved us and gave his life to rescue us. Father, every one of us here today are guilty of giving in to other stories of success, of pleasure, of relationships, even study, even family, that ultimately are not meant to be the big story, but are to fit within the realm of that big story. So, Father, we want to embrace the big story, and we know that in doing so, we have to let go of the false stories even the good things that have become ultimate things in our hearts. Help us to trust you and to let them go. Thank you that Jesus himself was the evidence of that trust. When Jesus came into this world and gave his life for us, for our sin, that story of self-giving love motivates, challenges us encourages us to be people who give ourselves to you as well. In Jesus' name.